Okay, all right. We are back again for part four of the Bloody Woman and the Seven-Headed Beast. Uh, this is the grand finale. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 12. 17, 12. We're working our way through this chapter. This information is in the book, The Bloody Woman and the Seven-Headed Beast, which is a great resource for small groups, Bible studies. It's a deep book trying to understand Revelation 17. So I'll read this text and then we'll have a prayer. Revelation 17 verse 12 says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and they shall give their power and their strength to the beast. Let's pray and ask God to help us to figure this out. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being here in Loma Linda, California. And we pray for your blessing as we finish up part four of this series. Please help us to understand your holy word. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. The first time ten are mentioned, we have ten horns here in chapter 17. The first time ten are mentioned, the word ten is used in the context of these prophecies, is in Daniel chapter 2, where we have the big metal man, remember? Big metal man that Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream and Daniel interpreted it. It had a head of gold, breast and arms of uh, silver, belly of bronze, uh, legs, thighs and legs of iron. And then it goes down into the toes. And how many toes do most people have? Ten. Right, ten toes. Now, the next time is in Daniel 7, where we go down through the history of again, in, but instead of metals, it's beasts. And we have a fourth beast representing the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had how many horns? It had 10, 10 horns. Daniel 7, verse 7. 10 horns. And those 10 horns represented the division of the Roman Empire, especially in Western Europe. And then there's another horn, an 11th horn that comes up. And he uh, knocked out three. And then he eventually ruled Europe through the horns during the Dark Ages. So in Daniel 7, the ten horns have their uh, application to what was going on in Western Europe. And then we get to Revelation chapter uh, 13, where the crowns have shifted to the horns, and we have the beast ruling through the horns, of representing the kingdoms of Europe, the kingdoms of Europe. And so then in Revelation 17, looking back on Daniel or chapter 13 and Daniel chapter 7 and going back to Daniel chapter 2, we have ten horns again mentioned in verse 12. The ten horns which you saw, they are ten kings. And I interpret this based again on the symbol to literal principle that those ten kings represent ten kingdoms, ten kingdoms, and I, as I've tried to understand this, 
I've concluded that the primary application of those ten horns represent the kingdoms of Europe. Europe specific. We have that in Daniel 2. We have that in Daniel 7. We have uh, one of those horns, which was France, wounded the papacy in 1798. So we have a lot of, uh, of focus on Europe when it comes to these horns. So I see the primary application to the nations or kingdoms of Europe that are going to receive a final kingdom for one hour, which I apply to a short space, uh, with, with the beast. It says that they, in verse 13, it says they will have one mind. They'll be linked together. And they will eventually give their power and their strength to the beast. Now, in saying that, let me add that, as I mentioned in the last meeting, I also see a legitimate use of what I call a dual application principle. And I explained that in last meeting. We saw that in Revelation chapter 1 with the seven candlesticks representing the seven churches literally in Asia in that literal location, but then also applying to the history of the church. And it seems to me that it's quite possible that we have a dual application here as well that the ten horns primarily have a European application, but it's very possible that they have a dual application to all the kingdoms of the world during the final moments of time, during the final crisis, that verse 13 says, they give their power and their strength to the beast. Now, how are they going to do that? How are European nations and nations around the world going to give their power and their strength to the beast? Uh, I've concluded that the way they're going to do that is they're going to they're give their, their legislative power and their legislative strength to the beast by enforcing the beast's mark upon humanity. That's how it's going to happen. When the nations of the world enforce Sunday, which is really a day that goes back to the Roman Catholic Church, when they do that, they are going to be giving their power, their civil authority, their legislative authority to the papal power by enforcing its day. And this is going to happen in Europe, and it's going to happen ultimately all over the world. It's going to happen in America and every nation on earth is going to follow suit and they're all going to cooperate together. And that's where we're going. That's where we're heading. Now, let's make this practical. If you look again at verse 13, it says they will have one mind and they will give their power and their strength to the beast. Now, think about this. If the nations of this world, including in America, that's going to speak like a dragon, set up an image of the beast and basically do what the beast did, did in Europe. What happened in Europe, America is going to do in the West. And when America does that and enforces the mark of the beast, and when the kingdoms all around the world give their power and their 
strength to the beast, where is that power and that strength ultimately going to be directed directed at? <laughs> it's going to be directed at the people who say, I'm not going along with this. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Though America and the Vatican and Europe and the kingdoms around the world ultimately get behind the Pope and the idea that a universal day of rest will solve the climate change problems, solve all kinds of problems. You know, I don't know if you heard this, but the Pope even said that the pandemic, the coronavirus, is a judgment upon us because we have not been taking care of the environment. Have you heard that? Yeah. It's nature fighting back at its uh, citizens, the people of Earth, because we haven't been taking care of the environment. We've been uh, polluting the planet, and that's resulted in climate change and weather-related disasters, and even the, even the virus. That's what the Pope said. You can Google that, and you can find that. He says, uh, he actually says all kinds of things. And so it, when, the, when the power and the strength of governments around the world go along with the Pope's advice and enforce the mark, the strength and the power of these governments is going to go against the people of God. And I've read that verse and I've pondered that and i thought, if the day comes when the power and the strength of the governments of this world are targeting us, then what do we need in order to stand up against this? Well, we're going to need greater power and greater strength than what the governments of this world are going to level against us, right? And where can we find greater power and greater strength when the whole world comes against us? That's right. The answer is Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the next verse. Verse 14 says, These, these ten horns in Europe and around the world, these shall make war with the Lamb. So when the nations of earth get behind the papal power and enforce Sunday as a universal day of rest, thinking that this will solve all the problems on this planet, what they're really doing without realizing it is they're making war on Jesus Christ. And when they level their uh, focus on the people of God, who at that time will not be politically correct, you know, we're going to be considered to be extremists. I thought it was very interesting, and I don't want to get into politics here, but I thought it was very interesting when uh, President Trump or former President Trump when the impeachment trial, you know, went in his favor, I'm sure you're aware of that, you know, he was impeached uh, a second time around and they didn't have the votes to impeach him. Uh, President Biden made a very interesting statement that came out from the White House. It was public, an official statement from the White House where he talked about, you know, his views on the impeachment. And then this is what he said, and I'm just going to paraphrase it. 
I don't have it in front of, in front of me, but he said there is, there is no place in America for violence and for extremism. And he was referring to the, uh, the Capitol riot, you know, on January 6th that was the spark for the impeachment hearings. And I thought about that, you know, I just thought that is so interesting what he said. There's no place in America for violence, and I can agree with that, no place for violence because that's what civil government's all about. Civil government is to protect its citizens from physical harm. But then he said there's no place for violence or extremism. And I thought, what do you think of that? Is it the government's... Now, if he's applying this, you know, if this applies to uh, terrorist extremists that want to blow up planes or who want to blow up people or, you know, suicide bombers, well, I can, I can see that. But the word extremism <coughs> is a rather <coughs> relative term. Have you noticed? <laughs> uh, whether a person views another person as an extremist depends upon the views of the person. And so Bible-believing Christians can become extremists. To some people, vegetarians are extremists. To some people, those who keep the Sabbath are extremists. So it just depends on, you know, where a person is at. But extremism is a very relative term that can be applied to many things. And so, uh, you know, when President Biden said there's no place for extremism, I thought to myself, that sounds scary. Because what if people that aren't extreme are considered to be extreme? Uh, I have a good friend of mine who uh, did a YouTube program recently on the eight laws of health on how that would help you to build up your immune system in case you encounter the coronavirus. And that video was pulled by the powers that be in YouTube simply because it mentioned COVID-19. And it was shut down for no good reason. <laughs> and you're probably aware of the fact that, you know, the big tech companies are on the move right now to shut down people that they consider to be extremists. And the really, the, the American government surely is supposed to protect us from violence, but it's not the role of government to define extremism. That's not the role of our government. Our government has a, has a higher responsibility than that free speech. You know, this whole weekend that I'm doing, somebody could look at that and say, that's very extreme and you shouldn't be allowed to do that. See what I mean? And when the final time comes and the final crisis hits, those of us who stand up for Jesus and for the Bible and for the Ten Commandments and for the Sabbath, we are going to be labeled unfairly as extremists. And if we don't go along with the universal plan for the common good, which is really the mark of the beast, we are going to become the eye of the storm. We are going to become the people 
that the governments of the world are going to see as extremist and are, we are dangerous, even though we're not. <laughs> Just like Jesus, you know, the Sanhedrin determined this man is dangerous. We have to get rid of him. It's better for one man to die than the whole nation to perish. They concluded that Jesus Christ was a threat to Israel and to the temple and to Moses and to the law. So they decided they had to get rid of him. And it's coming again. It's coming again. And that's what verse 14 is all about. These shall make war with the Lamb. When the governments of this world consider the people of God to be extremists and make war on them, on you and on me, who are they really making war on? That's right. They're really making war on Jesus Christ himself. That's, that's why when Jesus knocked uh, Saul down on the road to Damascus, he was on his way to gather up the Christians and to bring them to Jerusalem and to you know, try them and ultimately kill them. Just like Stephen was stoned, when Saul was on his way there, Jesus appeared to him, knocked him down, blinded him by light, and then his voice said, his voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now he was persecuting the Christians, but Jesus said, you're persecuting me because when you persecute the people of God, you're persecuting God himself. When people persecute true Christians, they're persecuting Jesus Christ himself. And it's amazing to me the way Jesus talked to Paul, I've just been reading the books of Acts of the Apostles, and Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, which means it's hard for you to go against your conscience. You know, he had seen Stephen with his face glowing like an angel. And the Holy Spirit spoke right to him saying, this is a man of God. And it was hard for him to uh, wiggle around <coughs> the convictions of conscience that this man was a man of God and he shouldn't have done that. But he resisted his conscience. He kept resisting, resisting, resisting. And the way Jesus talked to him to me is just phenomenal. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you, isn't it, to go against your conscience? And, and that just shows me the, the, uh, the, the, what's the word? The magnanimity, the... Uh, generosity of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Here's a man that's persecuting his own people and he reasons with him and says, why are you doing this? <laughs> it's hard for you to go against your conscience, isn't it, Paul? And then Paul said, who are you? <laughs> and then the voice said back, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. I tell you, we serve an amazing Savior. Uh, and during the final crisis, when people are trying to kill us, just like the people were, just like Saul was trying to kill the Christians, when people are out against us, they're you know making war on us. We need to have the graciousness and the tactfulness and the kindness of Jesus, who loves his enemies, who loved Saul, even though he was persecuting his own children. Isn't that amazing? 
We need the character of Christ to relate to even our enemies in a Christ-like way. Wow. These shall make war with the Lamb. They're really making war on Jesus when they make war on the people of God. And then it says, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. This is what Revelation 17 is really all about. It's about the past, it's about the present, it's about the future, but it's about preparing us to be the people of God who can stand up in the midst of the storm that's going to hit us, thankfully, only for a short space. And when that short space hits and all the forces of the devil are making war on us and ultimately on Jesus, we can take comfort in the fact that we are the people of God and that in making war on us, they're making war on Jesus. And Jesus is going to rise up off his throne and he's going to defend his people and stand for them and he's going to overcome all the forces of evil and conquer them because he is king above the kings and Lord above all of the lords. Hallelujah. So can you see the practical power of this chapter? You know, Revelation 17 is, is mighty and it's designed to bring us into the presence of God and deepen our Christian experience and get us ready for the final crisis when the seventh king hits us for a short space. Now, here's another thought. And here's the, one of the main reasons why I wrote this book bloody woman and the seven-headed beast. Verse 9 describes a mind and verse 13 describes another mind. Verse 9 says, here is the mind which has wisdom. So one mind is a mind that's a wise mind. And then in verse uh, 13, there's another mind. Here it says, uh, it says, these have one mind and they will give their power and their strength to the beast. The mind of verse 13 is a, a collective mind. It's a group think mind. It's a mind that is willing to go along with the majority. That's the bad mind. The good mind is the mind that has wisdom that submits to God, that submits to his word, that is led by the Holy Spirit, and that is a humble mind, a humble mind, rather than the mind of the devil that's going to be linking all the nations of the world with his own mind. Ultimately, it's Satan's mind, which is a proud mind. Satan has a self-exalting mind. Jesus has a humble mind. Satan wants to be like God. And Jesus said, uh, learn of me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Two minds. And this chapter is really designed, I believe, to teach us that we, that we all have to make a decision which mind we're going to have. Are we going to have a mind that is being linked to the devil? And that's what's happening right now with the whole thing about extremism and uh, you know, the Pope's encyclical and the, the high-tech companies going down on uh, freedom of speech. Their, their minds are being linked 
Can you see that? They're linking together and they're looking at life in a certain way. And they're seeing Bible-believing Christians as dangerous. That's the wrong mind. It's not the way to look at life. It's a big mistake. And Satan is working right now to link people's minds all around the world with his mind. And at the same time, God is working to link human minds with his mind. So we have to choose whose mind are we going to be connected with? Are we going to be connected with the mind of the devil? Or are we going to be connected with the mind of the infinite God? And I'm convinced that the way to be connected with the mind of the infinite God is to submit humbly to the authority of his word through the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit give us the mind of Christ. Let him teach us the word of God. Let him teach us how to have faith in God and not to go along with the majority. Does that make sense? Uh, there was a time in my Christian life a couple of years ago when I went through a terrible struggle. I, actually, two years earlier than that, I went through another struggle. I've been through a number of struggles in my life. Terrible struggle. And one of the most valuable lessons that God taught me through my struggles is not to rely on my own thinking, but to rely on what he says. That's what brought me through, was trusting the promises that his grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in weakness. There, I can tell you many, many nights, I lay in bed at night, and if I've got you know, some conflict going on in my head or some struggle, I think to myself, I go through Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in the green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I've been through that psalm over and over and over and over again during the night season. And it has been such a blessing. And some time ago, I remember thinking to myself as I was going through these different scriptures, I thought, praise the Lord, my mind has found rest. In the conflicts of life, in the battles that happen right inside here, my mind has found rest by trusting in God's word. And that's a big lesson that I've learned. And I hope that you will learn that lesson as well. Now, we've got a little bit more to do before we finish this up. A little bit more as we keep reading. Uh, verse 15. Verse, okay, we read verse 15. Verse 16. Verse 16 says... And the ten horns which you saw upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and shall burn her with fire. For God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And that's when the beast's power is fully healed when the ten horns who have no kingdom as yet, they finally unite and they give their power and their strength to the beast and that's when the deadly wound is completely healed. That's when the beast completely rises up 
out of the bottomless pit right before it goes in to perdition. Now what's happening in this verse is that the ten horns which support the beast give their power to the beast, their strength to the beast, enforce the mark of the beast. In verse 16, at some point, they, their eyes are opened and they reverse course. They realize that they've made a terrible mistake. That they've been supporting a woman that is a harlot. They've been supporting a power that is a beast. They've been supporting a power that is at war with the Lamb and with God. That the people that they've been warring against are really the people of Jesus Christ. And they realize that and then they turn on the beast and on the whore. And it says they will ultimately destroy her. They will hate her. They will make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and they will burn her with fire. And I've thought about that and I've concluded that the big moment of revelation happens during the seven last plagues when they all unite together against the people of God and think that the universal Sunday law is the way to go and they're getting ready to kill God's people, then what happens is probation closes up in heaven. Everybody's made their choice in their minds, either the mark of the beast or the seal of God, either the devil or Jesus, and then the plagues begin to fall one by one upon the people of the earth. And the fifth plague, if you remember, the fifth plague in Revelation 16, the seven last plagues, which is, remember, the seven angels with the seven plagues is how we started this chapter. They eventually come down. And the fifth plague is darkness upon the seat of the beast. And where is the seat of the beast? It's Rome. That's right. And what's going to happen, especially, I believe, in Europe, is that when Europeans see darkness fall upon the Vatican and the news agencies flash, breaking news, darkness has fallen on the Vatican, cause unknown. When the people of Europe see the Vatican in darkness, just like the darkness of Egypt, their eyes are going to be opened and they're going to realize that this power is in darkness. This power has deceived us. And that's why we're getting the plagues. And especially Europeans who are right in the closest proximity to Italy and to the Vatican, they're going to turn on her. And it, the Bible says they're going to burn her with fire. How many of you remember when, uh, when Notre Dame was burning? Remember that? People around the world were watching the fire as it was coming up from, uh, from, from Notre Dame. And when I looked at that, I thought, you know, I couldn't help but think this is a uh, prelude to the time when the Vatican is going to be on fire. And people are going to turn on her because they're going to finally realize that this power is not the voice of God. People around the world today, they look at the man dressed in white with a little yarmulke on his head, you know, the skull cap. 
He's dressed in white all the time. And people look at the Pope, who's now the most influential person on planet Earth. And they look at him and they think he's the voice of God. He's the man with the plan. He's got the solution to the world's problems. He's put out his encyclical on climate change. He's trying to save the environment. He's the nice man that's trying to bring us all together and to keep Sunday as a universal day of rest and all those people that don't cooperate are the extremists who need to get, you know, be put out of the way for the common good. That's where we're heading. And they're finally going to realize that that voice coming from the man dressed in white is the voice of the serpent. It's the voice of the dragon. It's the voice of the devil. And the woman, what she offers is the wine of Babylon. And the whole world is drunk with that wine. And when they finally realize that, they are going to turn on her and it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty. And that's what the Bible says. Verse 17 says, For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. I'm convinced that the words of God are going to be fulfilled. In the midst of all the different ideas and teachings that are in this world, we need to be locked in to the words of God because these words are going to be fulfilled. And God is even going to use the wrath of his enemies, the wrath of those who are trying to kill his people when that wrath is turned against uh, the woman, he's going to be using people's wrath against the woman as part of the execution of his judgments against a woman that has led millions of people astray. It's a scary thought but it's what the Bible says. Verse 18 is the last, uh, last verse in chapter 17. Verse 18 says, And the woman which you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And I'm convinced that that great city, the primary application of that great city is the city of Rome itself. Going all the way back to the time of imperial Rome that persecuted the people of God, papal Rome during the Dark Ages that persecuted the people of God, and finally when papal Rome uh, gets its power back, its political power, through the ten horns giving their power and strength to the beast, the deadly wound is completely healed. And the final deceptions, really, they, they stream, they come out from the city of Rome itself. Rome has been the source of, a, of a, an incredible amount of horror and deception and evil and lies that have come against the people of God for a long, long time. And that, uh, that woman and that beast and that city is eventually 
going down. And so is all of the people around the world that choose to drink her wine, that choose to go along with her deception, that are willing to have their minds linked with an evil mind, with, a, uh, with, the, with the devil's mind ultimately, instead of the mind of, of Jesus Christ. And it's fascinating. We don't have time to study it right now, but in Revelation 18, it talks about when, when she's burning and the smoke of her burning is going up. It says the merchants of the earth are watching, the kings of the earth are watching, the uh, uh, heaven is watching. Read Revelation 18. Read about all the different groups that are standing afar off, it says, and are watching the smoke of her burning. And that tells me that there's going to be a real place right there in Italy where that smoke's going to go up and people are going to look at that and they're going to see the final judgments of God upon a power that has led the world astray, has changed the day of the Creator, changed the law of God, enforced it as a mark, and led the whole world into sin against Jesus Christ. That's what's happening in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 17 and in chapter 18. And ultimately, our safety zone is the Lamb. Jesus Christ is our safety zone. The devil has a proud mind. Jesus has a humble mind. And 2,000 years ago, on a cruel cross, Jesus took your sins and my sins. He took the sins of the whole world into his mind and into his heart. And he suffered, he agonized, he bled, and he died on a cruel cross to pay the price. And that is a revelation of infinite, unfathomable love. It's a love that we can't even understand. And when I was going through my dark days, the Lord just taught me that he loves me no matter what. He's going to help me as long as I just trust in him. He's going to bring me through. He cares for me. His love for me, his commitment to me is non-negotiable. As long as I'm willing to continue to trust in him, he won't leave me if I don't leave him. And as we wind this up, I want to encourage you that Revelation 17, you know, with all these different forces and the kings and the horns and the dragon and the woman, ultimately its primary focus is the lamb. It's the lamb of God. And Jesus is the lamb for you. The lamb for you. He took your place. He died for your sins. He paid the full price and his death is enough to save every single one of us. There's not a one of us that's too far gone or too far down or too sinful or too dark or too, you know, too messed up. There's not a one of us that's too messed up. You know, I pray for the Pope too. Um, some people say you shouldn't pray for the Pope, but I, I pray for Francis. I, I hope that somehow God will open his eyes too because I believe God loves him too. He loves President Biden. He loves everybody in government. He loves all the kings of the earth. 
He loves people that are inside the bloody woman. He loves all of us. And his goal is to get us out of here and to get us up there and to be with us forever. And the good news of the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus is the lamb and he's the king. He paid the price and he's coming back. He's humble and yet he's the lion. He's going to put down all the world forces of evil and protect his people and get us out of here if we trust him and hold on to him and say, Lord, I am yours. Lord, uh, I accept you as my savior. I pray for your Holy Spirit to be in my life. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. And I pray that you'll write my name in your book, the Lamb's Book of Life, and that you'll keep it there and that no matter what happens, I'm going to follow you instead of the ways of the world so I can be with you and eat from the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen. Sound good? Amen. Hallelujah. All right, praise his name. So I encourage you to give your life to Jesus. Make him first in your life. Make his word first in your life and you'll never be sorry. Pray for the Holy Spirit that the Spirit of God will guide your mind and help you and prepare you to link up with an infinite mind, with God's mind, and to get you ready for whatever is coming in this world. Make sense? All right, let's, uh, let's close with prayer. I'm gonna kneel up here. You can kneel if you'd like or if you don't have room, just bow your heads. And we are just about at the end of our our weekend and thank the Lord that he's good to us he loves us he's given us the chance to be here and to hear these wonderful truths from his word dear father in heaven Lord uh, we sense that the spirit of God is in this place and Lord we we long for the day when Jesus will come when we won't have to struggle in this world with the pandemic and with old age or with sickness or with people uh, getting hurt or children crying and all the things that are happening and the deceptions that are uh, around us. We just pray that Jesus, that you will be Lord of our lives, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Lamb of God. Lord, be with each person here. Help us all to make that big choice to surrender our lives to you, to accept the gospel to accept that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. He went to heaven and he's coming back. Lord, get us ready. Use us as part of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, the movement that you have raised up to teach Bible truth, to teach the Ten Commandments, to teach the Sabbath, to teach the Second Coming. Help us to learn these truths of your word. And Lord, fill us with your love, your grace, just like you, you were kind to Saul, even though he was trying to kill your, your children. You were still kind to him. You asked him, why are you doing this? It's hard for you to go against your conscience. Lord, give us that kind of grace and kindness as we relate to others. Even those that don't agree with us or even those that may want to hurt us, help us to be like you so we can reflect your character in this world of sin. In the midst of the darkness, may your light shine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.